trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So glad you could join us today. On the one hand, there is never a shortage of relevant things to talk about. On the other hand, this world is getting crazier by the minute. So what's the task for you and I, for for concerned souls who have a sense of right and wrong and maybe you want to do, you know, whatever we can within our power to, to be a positive influence on the world? Well, I'm glad you asked. You know, rhetorically, I'm glad glad you posed that question, because to me, it seems like uh, the biggest duty that we have at this moment is to think clearly and independently. I don't think it's a one size fits all thing as far as well. what actions ought we take? You know, your actions may be very different from the actions that I have to take. But if we can at least uh, stay tethered to reality, I think that's that's a big start. And I'm very grateful that you're part of this audience, whether you're just uh, dropping by or whether you're uh, in for the long haul. I would encourage you to go to the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. You can subscribe at the uh, bottom of each show notes. There's a link that will take you to the subscription page. You can also become a patron if you wish to, if you find value. Okay, I wouldn't ask this of just anybody, but if you find value in the information that I share, if this strengthens your heart, you know, puts steel in your spine, then consider becoming a monthly supporter. And you can do it for as little as a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month. It's, It's greatly appreciated, and it allows me to focus on getting and disseminating the best information that I can. Also, we have some great sponsors who help make this program possible. They include HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, Pure-Light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Actually spent some time down there this past weekend. Um, it's This is a place that's kind of removed from the hustle and bustle of the Wasatch Front. It's down near the Four Corners area of Utah, and it's such a beautiful, peaceful campus. It's a living campus, too, meaning that the students who attend there are not only getting a world-class liberal arts education, but they're also learning incredible manual arts, how to build, how to garden, how to uh, how to manage their lives. Fascinating stuff. I'll let you uh, follow the link to find out more about it, but it was it was a real pleasure to get to meet the student body, to get to meet the administration, the mentors, and uh, I I want to go back. There's just I don't know. There's a peace and quiet there that is pretty tough to find these days. So among the things we're going to talk about, there's a word that has uh, been been popping up more and more in our vocabulary and in the stories that I see, and it's the word equity. Now, you know, I used to just think, well, that's how much value you have in your home versus how much you owe on the mortgage. (laughs) It's equity, right? But the way it's being used now, it's kind of being used as a substitute for what we used to call equality. And by equality, I mean equality before the law. That's one of the things that, that a free society really values is you know, we treat people with a sense of equality under the law, meaning you don't get special treatment just because your last name is this or your skin color is that. Everybody answers the same to the law and government itself is expected to obey the law. Equity is a much different thing, though, and it's it's 
it purports to make up for past wrongs that were done long ago and tries to make them right by artificially handicapping some people or punishing some people in the here and now based on, you know, arbitrary things. Skin color, gender preference, state of mind. You can guess it's a pretty one-way street, too. It, it definitely runs towards those who, uh, who embrace uh, more Marxist thinking, particularly cultural Marxist thinking. Oh, yeah, they're, they're great. They're doing fantastic. But you're seeing it pop up in so many ways. And it's, it's, it's offering a poison pill. George Will actually had a great article in the Washington Post about um, how attacking merit in the name of equity is a prescription for mediocrity. And this is what he says. He says, in progressivism's political lexicon, equity is a synonym for government-directed social outcomes that improve conditions for particular government-favored groups. See, that's where the whole equality before the law thing goes right out the window. Equity is enhanced when government policies like affirmative action narrow disparities of outcomes among groups, usually racial or ethnic, in acquiring wealth or educational excellence. Necessarily, then, he says, the antonym of equity as a social standard of justice is merit. In this sense, the opposite of an equitable society is a meritocracy. Progressivism increasingly argues that an important impediment to enlarging equity is the tyranny of merit. Now, I'm going to step back from the article for just a moment and just ask, what does it mean when someone invokes merit? You know, if you were looking to award a prize for the best, we'll just say the best strawberry preserves at the, at the county fair, what are the things you want to consider? I would think that there would be some objective guidelines well, you know, they have to uh, they have to meet this standard has to have been produced at home, can't be a mass produced, you know. You didn't go buy a jar of smuckers and slap your label on it. Yeah, that's me, you know. <laughs> it it has to be, you know, created according to the the rules of of how a recipe is supposed to be done. Now there is some subjectivity, as in one judge may say, "Well, I like this one better or I like that one better." But that's why they have multiple judges and ultimately those judges make the decision, "This is what we judge to be the best one." In other words, it outperforms the others in some measurable way. This one is performing better than the other entries. Now, I know for, for progressive uh, thinking, sometimes the idea that, well, that means that someone doesn't win. Yes, and that is life, believe it or not. I don't know if you've looked around, but uh, we all have to take our turn, you know, not winning in certain circumstances. But to have government step in and to start applying government force to get the desired outcome to where, well, but we want to make more people win, not based on anything that they've done to merit, you know, this consideration, but simply because of some some call like, well, you know, they, they have this skin color or they, they identify with this gender preference or this is the pronoun gang they belong to. Can you see where that might become a source of mischief? That might be taken for a ride. Back to uh, George Will's article. He says, the, the, the tyranny of merit is the title of a lucid, learned, closely reasoned 2020 book by Harvard political philosopher Michael Sandel. Like its unfailingly civil author, the book is temperate in tone, but radical in implications. 
It illustrates a momentous development, progressivism's despair about and explicit abandonment of the aspiration that defines the American project, which is equality of opportunity. These days, Sandel writes, we view the way the Puritans, uh, we view success rather, the way the Puritans viewed salvation, not as a matter of luck or grace, but as something we earn through our own effort and striving. This is the heart of the, meritoc- of the uh, meritocratic ethic. Now, Sandel objects to this because expansive conceptions of personal responsibility ignore the fact that no one deserves his or her natural attributes. Furthermore, the rhetoric of responsibility and of being masters of our fate obscures the degree to which even virtues conducive to thriving in a merit-based society, things like diligence, industriousness, self-reliance, deferral of gratification, are learned. They are largely inculcated in families, which are the primary transmitters of social capital, the habits necessary for taking advantage of the opportunities offered by an open society. By Sandal's correct reckoning, Families are sources of inequalities. By his incorrect reasoning, this is a problem in need of correction. Now, Sandel correctly says that education, rather than propelling social mobility, reinforces family advantages. But should society regret families focusing on their children's flourishing? George Will says Americans should think as Robert Frost did. I am against a homogenized society because I want the cream to rise. Okay, I'm going to step back again here for a moment and ask you, what, what possible benefit would there be in having the cream rise? I mean, isn't that going to make some people feel, by comparison, less than the cream? And the answer is yes. And the truth of the matter is we have all been in that position. We've seen people who could do what we were aspiring to do far better. Now, what's not seen is, in some cases, there may be some natural aptitude. More often than not, though, there is a price that was paid for personal excellence. And I'm not just talking in the field of sports, although that's kind of where my mind runs. Well, you know, you want to be a golfer like Tiger Woods? You've got to put in the hours. You've got to pay in sweat to develop the uh, personal equity. See how I use that? To, uh, you know, to really have value in what you're doing. We're going to come back to George Will's article. Attacking merit is a prescription for mediocrity. It's some good food for thought. You are not required to agree with it. But it's definitely a good place to talk about this and seems to be on a lot of people's minds lately. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article here from George Will, published in the Washington Post. And this is kind of a, this is an interesting take where we're hearing equity as uh, the solution to what is solving problems, or to, to what is causing problems in society. There's just too much inequality of outcome. And if we just have government start applying certain advantages to some, but not to others, Supposedly, this will balance the scales. Not really, though. George, George Will points out, if when you sever merit from the social mechanisms that allocate social rewards, and the idea of personal responsibility has to go, too. 
He says also the aspiration for an open society in which individuals striving rather than government, in other words, political power, determines who thrives. I'm not troubled by the fact that there are better people than me in whatever endeavor or area of life you want to point out. I'm grateful that there are such individuals. Do you know why? Because they provide proof to me, first of all, that that achievement, even high achievement, can be done. I need that example. I need to be able to look toward them and, and realize I may never reach the heights that they reached, but I would still be better for trying. And likewise, they may, there may be people who, you, no matter how humble you are, no matter how humble you think your situation is, there are likely people who look at you and wish that they could trade places with you. I have a friend who's a very world-class martial arts instructor. Phenomenal guy. And he, he posted a meme this morning on Facebook that I thought was, was really appropriate. He says, a lot of people want to take your place until they learn what it requires to play your position. So, a little bit of humility goes a long way, but uh, having government step in to determine who will thrive and who won't, never a good idea. As George Will points out, because natural talents are undeserved, some progressives argue, the unequal rewards that the talented reap are too, and are equitable only to the extent that they serve the public good. But he asks, as defined by whom? Huh? There's the rub. The public good, defined by progressivism, is served by the redistribution of the rewards of talent to the less talented. In a market society, however, the talented reap rewards because the public freely benefits from their contributions to satisfying the public's preferences. Will says progressives often argue that preferences are derivative, socially conditioned, and a non-sequitur alert. Therefore, allowing market forces to satisfy them is not an important imperative. He says it is, however, imperative if we are to have social calm and temperate politics. Now, the author he's quoting, Sandal, says meritocracy sows social discord, but a society without discord is neither possible nor desirable. A meritocratic society has less discord than a society that abandons meritocratic principles. Equity pursued through government-driven allocation of social rewards drenches society with bitter distributional conflicts because wealth and opportunity are allocated by political power, according to shifting standards contested by competing factions. Allowing the market to articulate preferences without seeking to decide who will decide who the deciders are, the preferences' moral worth promotes domestic tranquility. So today's accusations of systemic racism, more frequently bandied than defined, disparage American society's allocation of wealth and opportunity on the basis of metrics of merit. And the disparagers presume the allocation is inherently unjust unless it ameliorates racial disparities. So around the nation, selective public high schools and colleges are accused of perpetuating racial hierarchies by admission policies that seek excellence as measured by standardized tests. Yet aptitude tests for college admissions were adopted so that objective measures of merit could weaken the entrenchment of stale elites. He says no society ever has too much talent. With America facing a future of intensifying commercial and military competitions of increasing sophistication, it's reckless to advocate retreat from meritocracy toward, inevitably, government-engineered mediocrity. 
I mean, there are a lot of places you could take this, but um, I think it was Winston Churchill who used to explain that, uh, hey, the problem is that, uh, you know, when, when they talk about uh, the, the equality that comes along with socialism, I like, to, I like the term collectivism just because I think it, it more clearly describes the contrast of what you're choosing between the rights of the individual or the will of the collective. But Churchill talked about how socialism is very, very good at creating equal outcomes if what you're trying to equalize throughout the population is misery. I mean, I don't know, this is kind of a weird little gut check, but when you see someone driving a really nice car down the road, what's your first reaction? Do you, do you find yourself thinking, hey, they don't deserve that? Nobody needs that nice of a car. They're just flexing on us, man. They're just showing us how, how much money they make and how much they can afford. I submit to you that uh, such an attitude probably says more about you than it does the person driving the, behind the wheel of that car. I see someone with a beautiful home or with a nice car or something else that, that, that you know, is, is desirable, maybe even enviable. My first response is to be happy for them. That must be awesome. What a great feeling it must be to drive around in that. What a beautiful view they have from their home. I don't know. My heart's just not driven towards, I wish somebody would take that away from them so I could feel better. <laughs> That just seems so short-sighted. I want to share with you an article I came across a couple days ago. This is from Sheldon Richmond. I found this on everything-voluntary.com. If you haven't subscribed to their regular emails, you're missing out on some great content delivered right to your inbox on, uh, I was going to say a daily basis, but it seems like two or three times a week at least, I get the Everything Voluntary email. Always find something worthwhile. And there's an article here from Sheldon Richmond about liberty as a property so- problem. Sorry, a problem-solving process. So since we're we're talking about you know solving problems, well, obviously government uh, government-sponsored and enforced equity is one way we solve them. Yeah, but you know we're coming up on Independence Day, and liberty really was the reason why. The colonies declared their independence from the crown. It's why they went their separate way. It's why they banded together and fought the British and secured their independence and then later went on to uh, call into existence a federal government under a written constitution that protected God-given rights. Their goal wasn't, hey, let's, uh, let's come up with government and see if we can create the biggest, most expensive, most powerful government ever in human history. The goal was we're calling into existence a a type of government for the purpose of securing the blessings of liberty. Not just for them and their generation, but for all of us who would follow. The problem is I think too many people think of liberty as a destination rather than a process. Here's how Sheldon Richmond describes it. He says, strictly speaking, liberty isn't the solution to problems. It's what creates the framework in which solutions can be discovered. Now, that's an important distinction because it reminds us that advocates of full-blown liberty do not offer the world a problem-free society, but only a society in which problems are discovered and problem solvers are mobilized as quickly, fairly, and efficiently as possible. I think that's a great distinction, by the way. He says, to get this point across to students in lectures, I used to quote the title of a 1970 hit record, I beg your pardon, 
I never promised you a rose garden. Social troubles will not disappear with the emergence of full freedom, but the chances of spotting and addressing them will be maximized in the most just way. That's the best we can hope for in a world of scarcity and uncertainty. But on the other hand, as he points out, that's not too shabby, is it? What makes this happen? Well, he says the answer can be captured in a single word, and that word is incentives. In a free society, people are rewarded or they profit by spotting and solving problems or correcting errors before others have done so. Self-interest is further aligned with the interest of others. We've got to hit the pause button here for a moment, but we'll come back just the other side of these messages. More on Sheldon Richmond's take on how liberty is a problem-solving process. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Welcome back to the show. I will have a link to this article from Sheldon Richmond, published on everything-voluntary.com. You can find it at thebrianhydeshow.com in my show notes for June 28th. Probably a date that's going to be rem- remembered as one of the hottest around. I now live in the uh, in the Pacific Northwest, and you know I'm not. We don't have it as bad as, uh, for instance, Seattle or Portland, but where I'm living in Southern Idaho, holy cow, it's hot. I've been a skeptic of global warming for a long time, but uh, and I still am, but uh, it is hot out. So, rather than deny, <laughs> I'll say there it's something something's very warm right now and I guess we move forward. Back to the idea of liberty as a problem-solving process. Sheldon Richmond says this aspect of social life where self-interest is further aligned with the interest of others has been developed for many decades by the most important economists, among whom, he says, I would spotlight those of the Austrian school. So for the 20th century, that would include luminaries like uh, Ludwig von Mises, F.A. Hayek, Israel Kirzner, and Murray Rothbard, followed by a couple of later generations of social scientists who continue to work in this tradition. He says if the incentive system is to work, people need to be free to offer solutions. The scientist Joseph Priestley, in writing about education, wrote that to discover the best methods, we need an environment characterized by an unbounded liberty and even caprice. I think that's selfishness. Also, as Priestley put it, now all of those arts, those now of all arts rather, those stand the fairest chance of being brought to perfection in which there is opportunity of making the most experiments and trials. Now, the logic behind Priestley's idea isn't complicated. We don't always know if a method of accomplishing something will work, however good it may look on paper. It still has to be tested. But since that's the case, we need a highly decentralized environment in which ideas can be tested. Sheldon Richmond says, I don't like the word system for what I have in mind because that suggests an overall design rather than what Hayek called spontaneous order. In a centralized system, trial and error would be dicey since the inevitable mistakes would be committed on a large scale with little chance for individuals to opt out. But in a decentralized environment, mistakes are necessarily contained, readily observed by others, and then corrected by those who offer a different product or service. Government agents face different incentives since government usually is the only game in town. 
In fact, they face perverse incentives. Politicians and bureaucrats may prosper by the existence, even the exacerbation of problems. For instance, if an agency is failing, the solution most often is to appropriate more money. And since government centralizes approaches to problems, mistakes are committed on a large scale, especially when they're undertaken at the national level. Federalism can reduce the scale of error, but not nearly as much as the free market can because state and local governments lack other features of the marketplace. Now, this point turns the spotlight on another aspect of a free society, and that is competition. Competition is what happens with one person who thinks he or she has a better way of doing something than someone else does. And the way you find out is you offer it to the public. This shows that competition and cooperation are two sides of the same coin, not opposites. But if government erects obstacles to upstart competitors, then it throttles the process and better ways of addressing problems are left on the shelf if undiscovered at all. Hayek called competition a discovery procedure, which gets at a crucial point. Sheldon Richmond says, I call competition the universal solvent. We can find a similar idea in John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, in which he extols the truth-discovering value of the radically free exchange of ideas. My favorite line from that book, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. So Richmond says, freedom and competition make possible discoveries that would not have been found otherwise precisely because it's only in that environment, the market order, that people encounter circumstances and alternatives with respect to which they will demonstrate in action their true preferences, preferences they might not have expected to demonstrate. This is part of what's meant by spontaneous order. For this reason, government planners cannot hope to simulate market outcomes. The planners are barred from ever knowing what would have happened if people were left free. As James Buchanan points out, I want to argue that the order of the market emerges only from the process of voluntary exchange among participating individuals. The order is itself defined as the outcome of the process that generates it. The it, the allocation distribution result, does not and cannot exist independently of the trading process. Absent this process, there is and can be no order. Buchanan also says individuals do not act so as to maximize utilities described in independently existing functions. They confront genuine choices, and the sequence of decisions taken may be conceptualized after the choices in terms of as-if functions that are maximized. But if these as-if functions are themselves generated in the choosing process, not separately from the process. He says if viewed in this perspective, there's no means by which even the most idealized omniscient designer could duplicate the results of voluntary interchange. The potential participants, rather, do not know until they enter the process what their own choices will be. And from this, it follows that it's logically irresponsible for an omniscient designer to know, unless, of course, we are to preclude individual freedom of will. Now, there's a lot of economic lingo in there. For some people, this might be, you know, new language. It's worth getting your mind around. It's worth sitting down and reading until you understand it. I think they're right on the money. If it's voluntary, if it's freely chosen, you're going to get a much more natural, a much more organic outcome than when government or some central planner somewhere wants to control the outcome. So Sheldon Richmond says, much more could be and has been said on this subject, but the upshot is this. The best way to expose and to correct problems and errors is to leave people free. 
That's a tough sell for people who believe that it's the job of government to make sure that nothing bad ever happens. Freedom is always going to be risky. There is no way to get around that. Some people will choose to use their freedom in ways that you don't agree with. As long as their actions are peaceful, as long as their behavior is peaceful, we've got to be grown up enough to say, okay, that's their call. Unfortunately, there are those who just, uh, I don't know, control issues or whatever. They don't want to see that happen. Hey, a good example of this would be uh, kind of the, the, I guess, the, the push we're seeing at a federal level right now to implement stronger gun control. Why, you know, uh, the president was just flexing on this the other day. I feel sorry for his staff. I know they have their hands full, just keeping him on target, keeping him squinting into the, the teleprompter you know, as, as he tries to make sense of whatever's coming up on the teleprompter. But even so, they have their hands full when it comes to walking back, clarifying, or otherwise trying to manage some of his more nonsensical pronouncements. Thankfully, on the matter of the Second Amendment... They got a bit of volunteer help recently from Robert E. Wright from the American Institute for Economic Research, who uh, corrected one of Biden's statements last week about how the citizenry was prohibited from owning cannons at the time of the nation's founding. In fact, he sets the record straight on private cannon ownership in colonial America. Robert Wright says President Joseph R. Biden Jr. claimed in a speech on Wednesday, June 23rd, that the Second Amendment from the day it was passed limited the type of people who could own a gun and what type of weapon you could own. You couldn't buy a cannon. End quote. Oh, Joe, says Robert Wright, all the things you don't know. Your claims are factually inaccurate. Internet patriots should censor these particular ones as dismisinfoganda. I like that term, by the way. Other fact checkers have already pilloried your ignorance of these matters. You or at least your speechwriter should read a book Literally, My One Nation Under Debt, published back in 2008. Robert Wright says, in it and the copious sources cited therein, you will find that private individuals could and did form their own military units, usually termed legions, that included artillery units. That of Charles Dabney of Virginia is discussed in my book based on primary source research conducted at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture and military histories include plenty of other examples. They also could organize and charter private militia units as nonprofit corporations. For example, October 28, 1801, Thaddeus Rice, John Hastings, James Godfrey, Reuben Rice and others incorporated a private artillery company in St. Albans, Vermont. On November 3rd of the following year, 40 individuals did likewise in Shrewsbury, Rutland County. By the way, he documents all of these. And he goes through a number of other examples of they could own cannon. They could develop, manufacture, stockpile, and sell cannon. They could fire their cannons for celebratory purposes. I mean, this, this isn't just about a guy looking to score political points by, ha ha, president, you lied. This is, this is a serious historian looking to correct a, a very blatant misrepresentation of truth spoken from the lips of uh, what uh, some would say is the, the most popular politician in the free world. I'm just glad there are people out there like Robert E. Wright who've done the homework and, and can help those who want to see find that, no, the, the truth is, is a little bit different than whatever just came from the president's lips. I have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll be back right after these messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Do want to mention that our program is brought to you in part today by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, particularly if uh, your travels are taking you to the state of Utah, this is the name you want to remember. Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This is an incredibly unusual real estate market. I mean, like nothing that any of us have, have ever seen before. And when you find the home of your dreams, you better have your financing squared away because time is of the essence. There is no time to dilly-dally, you know, offer and counter-offer. you got to know that you are squared away and ready to go when you find it. Otherwise, the competition is fierce enough it'll be gone by the time you turn around. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes into play, from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, even if you're refinancing your existing home loan. The Heather Turner team has the stability, the decades of experience in the lending industry, and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. So get in touch with them by calling 435-703-4522. You can visit their offices in St. George, Utah at 619 South Bluff Street. They're in Tower 1 and 2. Heather's NMLS ID number is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And yes, there is a link to this business in the show notes at com. Just want to follow up with one quick uh, couple of quick paragraphs here from Robert E. Wright's uh, rebuttal of Joe Biden's comments on private canon ownership in early America. By the way, this is in the same context of the president saying, you know, uh, you can't take on your government unless you have nukes and F-15s. So your AR-15 is no good against a government that has all that power. Why is he worried about him then? If it's, if it's no big deal, I mean, if it's, you know, Hey, we have the ultimate Trump card, pun intended. You know, then uh, he shouldn't be worrying about it, right? Right? Okay. Here's what Robert E. Wright has to say. He says, although I hesitate to bring this to Joe's attention, individuals and nonprofits own cannons today. For example, in 2019, Brown's company of artillery fired for five hours in Lebanon. That's the one in Connecticut. And the Ancient and Honorable Artillery Company, a private artillery company organized in Massachusetts in 1638, still exists. Yes, they fire smoothbore muzzle loaders, which can remain completely federally unregulated to this day. Breech-loading cannon with rifled barrels are federally regulated, but they're not banned. And even though, according to the Washington Post, uh, candidate Biden spent plenty of time in his basement during the pandemic, apparently doing nothing, it would be reasonable to expect that President Biden would have as firm a grasp on American canon ownership as an economic historian like Robert E. Wright does. But all Americans should expect that their president won't spread dismissinfoganda. Wasn't that one of the reasons why we weren't supposed to vote for Trump? In short, Robert Wright says it's high time Biden apologized for breaking his campaign promise not to lie to the American people. And somebody should take down Gugzon, Twitbook, Instatalk, etc. for allowing his lie to spread over the interwebs because apparently their biggest fear is that somebody with a lot less influence than the president might communicate a dubious idea on one of their platforms and thereby end them somehow forever. Imagine what allowing presidential lies to circulate could mean for those patriots. Boom. 
I love his sense of humor, and and he's right. And look, nobody's nobody's asserting, boy, I better go get a cannon now, now that I know it's legal. It's hard enough to to find ammunition, to afford the ammunition, to you know, to stay properly trained and competent with uh, with your firearms at hand. For those who can afford crew served weapons, hey, more power to you. I love the joyous sound you're making for freedom. But even more, I love the fact that there are people like uh, Robert E. Wright who will speak up when misinformation is being uh, perpetuated and who will set the record straight. All right. In the closing moments here, I wanted to share with you a quick essay here from Paul Rosenberg on the purpose and value of art. Now, I greatly admire anyone who possesses artistic talent because I think creating beauty is a legit skill. Paul Rosenberg, in writing about the purpose and value of art, says, as far back as we can see any detail, in any detail rather, we find humans creating art. But he says, art is an odd thing in that people generally create it for internal and thus hard to articulate reasons, making clear logical explanations difficult. And making it still harder has been an obsession with incoherent and confusing art over the past century, something Salvador Dali once called the cult of the strange. And so most of us have had a hard time coming to grips with that and coming to grips with art. What, after all, is the point of a painting that provides no coherent image? And why would people consider a signed urinal great art? Yes, that's, that's a real example. He says, we can begin our examination with a passage from Tolstoy's What is Art? This is what Tolstoy said. Art is a human activity consisting in this, that one consciously, by means of certain external symbols, conveys to others the feelings one has experienced, whereby people so infected with these feelings also experience them. Now, in the same book, Tolstoy also writes, by words, one transmits thoughts to another by means of art, one transmits feelings. And Paul Rosenberg says, art then is a means of communication, and by implication, the communication of something worthwhile. A good painting, for example, can give you the sense of being in a certain place at a certain time, or it can give you the feeling of what it was like or what it would be like to be in that situation. So where is the value of art? Well, the transmission of feelings, he says, can be a very valuable thing. Imagine, for example, a very special time and place the kind that occurs only for a few seconds and only once in a generation. Art in the hands of a master can capture that moment, preserve it, and deliver it to people yet unborn. And he says, music can do the same thing. Of course, you you know certainly heard the opening lines in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, sitting in a silent concert hall. He says, imagine sitting in a silent uh, concert hall. And then imagine that, uh, that silence being broken by the first lines of that symphony played loudly by a full orchestra. Now, Beethoven wrote this on his copy of the music as he wrote it. Fate knocks. Can you hear how his music communicated that ominous feeling? That's what art can do. And presuming that the feelings being communicated have value, that's what makes art worth your time and energy. So then he gives a personal example. Paul Rosenberg says, There's a set of four paintings at the Art Institute of Chicago. They show groups of people discovering magnificent ancient ruins. And he says, When I see these paintings, I feel what it's like to discover such things. To see that other men have done great things. To see that such things are possible. And to think that I, too, am capable of such things. Seeing these paintings is a different experience for me than reading words. Both are valuable, 
but they're different. And he says, I get the same type of experience when listening to good music. Art affects me differently than do words, but both are strongly beneficial to me. One way or another, art should deliver something positive to you. And so laboring to understand and appreciate art that doesn't move you is probably a waste of your time. It's true that an appreciation for some things may be learned, but laboring to like something you really don't, because people say you should or because people think you're uncultured if you don't, is foolish. Either the art contributes something to you or it's not worth your time. By the way, can I just add my own addendum here? I feel the same way about whatever media I'm consuming, whether it's for entertainment or whether it's for information. If it doesn't add value to my life, I absolutely reserve the right to reject it and move on. Also, Tolstoy noted the assertion that art may be good art and at the same time incomprehensible to a great number of people is extremely unjust and its consequences are ruinous to art itself. It's the same as saying that some kind of food is good, but most people can't eat it. So here's what Paul Rosenberg suggests. He says, the reasons for art's degradation over the past century can be explained, but I'm tired of spending time on what was wrong. I'd rather build what is right. And so I encourage you to find art that moves you in some positive way and to surround yourself with it however you can. And those of you who feel compelled to make art, he says, I urge you to devote yourself to your craft. Whether your interest is painting, sculpting, music, or whatever, developing your skills will take long, hard work. Please don't try to avoid that development with trendy, flashy shortcuts. Yes, I know it can be hard, but do it anyway. And at the same time, learn how to draw upon your innate creativity. This is necessarily a long process, so don't try for shortcuts. What you're doing has immense value, so for all of our sakes, I thank you and urge you to continue. And he closes with some quotations on the subject. Uh, Tennessee Williams, the object of art is to make the eternal, make eternal rather, the desperately fleeting moment. How about this one from Victor Hugo? Homer is one of the men of genius who solved that fine problem of art, the finest of all, perhaps. Truly to depict humanity by the enlargement of man, to generate the real in the ideal. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. Look, I, I don't consider myself the artsy-fartsy type. Uh, maybe the second part, but not the first. Anyway, it would be worth your time to take a little closer look and then appreciate what kind of things bring those kind of values and feelings to you. And maybe spend a little more time pursuing them than simply looking at what's wrong. This is The Brian Hyde Show.